Hello everyone, welcome to the 350th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your 350th host, Mason, joined by my 350th co-host, Allie. Allie, how you doing? I can't count that high, so I don't know if I can be your co-host, I'm sorry. This is a rough way to announce it on the podcast, but I'll do what I have to do, I guess. Alright, well, Bye! Uh, <laughs> no, <Duh. laughs> 350 episodes, it's wild. We're actually uh, kind of talked about maybe doing something for 350, but decided to wait for 400. So a year from now, Allie, one year. Actually, a little less than that, but one year. Then we're going to do a special episode. But today we're going to talk uh, about leveling up and uh, sending signals. So that's going to be a pretty exciting thing. But first, Allie, we do need to talk about the point of the show, always improving. How have you always improved in the last week since we talked? Well, um, I, I made a tweet about it earlier, if anyone uses the website. Um, I think as a part of 2021, I've noticed through the help of my friend Mason and some other people that I kind of like approach conversations, especially around magic, as like adding kind of like disclaimers, but like adding like, I don't know, to the end of statements or like, I could be wrong. Which, in, like, some situations is fine, but I think I need to be more definitive in my opinions, at least. And if I'm wrong, then we find that out through discussion instead of, like, starting off the conversation at the point that I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. And the example that comes to mind is I was streaming today, and I said, I think Goblins is bad. And someone in my chat said... So, something along the lines of like, oh, like that's not true. They thought it was good or whatever. And instead of like explaining myself, my first reaction was like, oh yeah, like it, it's it's like fine. I'm just like, and like catch myself and go back and be like, no, actually, I I think goblins is actually really bad, and here's why, mm-hmm. and explaining that. So like, yeah, just being more uh, definitive and thinking through my positions more mm-hmm. yeah I think- voicing magic opinions and thoughts i don't know if you can say that but i think that mm-hmm. that's something that a lot a lot of people deal with right it's like the the idea and for it's different for different people but like the idea of like oh i should lead off with like i don't know or like if i say this thing and it's wrong i'll look stupid and people will judge me for it right and at the end of the day it just like doesn't really matter right like what matters more is like the discussion and stuff right and like doing that sort of thing and people are wrong all the time you know not me i'd never be wrong but like other like other people are wrong all the time you know so uh the script says to agree with mason here and tell him he's awesome is that are we still doing that yeah the i sent you the script so we would do it you don't have to you, you can just read the script. You know what it feels now. Oh, you don't, you don't okay. Have to the cue. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, yeah. No, I'll, Mason's I'll, I'll right. Yeah. No, but it is, it is like a serious thing that people deal with, right? Like, how many people do you know who are like are afraid to sound wrong? Like, a lot. I don't know. I, I think I know a lot of people who are, are afraid of the idea of being wrong, and so, yeah. Whatever it happens, you get over it in time. You know. When when you yeah, live so as long I... as I have, you're just wrong a lot. You know. <laughs> so. Yeah, just, like, being open to having conversation and actually just, like, not being afraid to just, like, say things. Especially, I think, is relevant looking at, like, 
spoilers and stuff like Kaldheim is coming out, like obviously it, everyone's could be wrong about something that they think about it, but just like having those disclaimers for literally every conversation you have isn't necessarily beneficial in a lot of situations. Yeah. Also, I think there's like a level of understanding that like, yeah, I'm going to be wrong sometimes, but these are like my thoughts as of right now. I am open to change them since I'm having a conversation with you. You know what I mean? I think that yeah. can relate a little bit uh, without ever really being talked about. So I'm happy to see that from you. That's awesome. It was cool to see on the stream today. And you're just right. You know, Goblin's overhyped. Muxus is really good, though. Muxus For, is broken. The rest of the cards suck. Yeah, Muxus is a legacy card that got added to Historic. <laughs> that's how that card was you know like jumpstart <laughs> uh either way yeah uh my, my always proving moment is uh just kind of getting back in the trenches as abe stein and i have been calling it but just playing a, a lot more uh moto and things like that and events and specifically modern for me but just trying uh, to like oh ali you okay yeah i'm good continue yeah so i just playing a bunch of, you know, Titan decks and stuff like that. Well, specifically Green White Titan, but just playing like a bunch of modern and, um, you know, living my best life <laughs> along with that. I thought you were going to uh again when I said modern. And so I kind of gave a half pause and then it didn't happen. <laughs> and you kind of threw me for a loop there. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Modern is definitely like something you're allowed to do. I mean, it's better than playing Vintage Cube. No. Yes. <laughs> it's so fun. You get to play Splitter Twin. Modern is so much fun. I get to play Elvish Reclaimer. It's the green hmm. stone forge mystic. How do you feel about that statement? Hmm. I Interesting. I, I, I was going to say I would play neither of those cards, but like I actively played stone forge mystic into a PT. So Yeah. <laughs> so what's it like to be caught in a web of lies, Allison? What's it like? <laughs> No, but uh, God, ima imagine me playing green and white together. Yeah, started it all. Some would say, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but like uh, just playing a bunch and getting back into that. I, I hadn't really played much modern. Wow, it feels like since the start of quarantine, around like you know April May, and I kind of been checked out. And uh, one of my friends let me borrow his deck. And I've just been kind of grinding the leagues, you know, playing a bunch every night. And it's been really fun to kind of get back in there playing that. And it, it's fun to play for stakes during the week, even if they're small stakes, right? You know, it's like, oh, this is the difference in like 10 and $15 or whatever, like, you know, this match. But it is cool to do that compared to Arena, which sometimes, like, I don't really care what my Mythic rank is. I know I'm going to qualify for the top 1,200 thing either SCGs or that, right? Like, it's just going to happen. I'm just not worried about it. So it's like, sometimes there aren't really stakes and I want to play Magic 4 stakes. And if there's like, right now, we're, Magic's kind of in a lull, playing an Eternal format gives me that kind of like, I can actually learn and do something comparative to like, you know, Standard. It's like, well, I, I could maybe learn and maybe do something, but it'll be invalidated in three weeks. So like, why would I, you know? So it's been, it's been fun to get back in the, in the swing of things. I don't know. Do you ever want to like, do you ever have that, like, fire just to compete or whatever? I guess you have a weird thing where, like, you kind of have that manufactured into your schedule because of rivals, right? Like, you have a split this weekend, for example. Yeah, like, I have the splits and the PTs. Um, mm -hmm. I think, like, I, I prefer something like that. Obviously, I'm in a privileged position being in rivals and just, like, being invited to those and essentially am putting nothing into something i can win money whereas like something like moto 
makes me anxious or like any kind of like gambling like i don't want to put money into something that i could potentially just like lose all of the money not that this is gambling in any capacity but <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the act of like you could lose money yeah the act of like oh i could pay ten dollars and then go oh five and then i just don't have ten dollars anymore interesting huh i that's interesting so, like do you feel that way about scgs and gps and stuff when you go because i mean you spend a lot we spend a lot of money to get to these things right or is it like the act of having the experience like make it so it's kind of sixes to you yeah, like, I, f I definitely feel that way for, like, those kind of tournaments as well, but I guess since I'm already, like, spending X amount of money to, like, go and do the thing anyway, it's just kind of, like, built into the itinerary. Like, if I was just going on a vacation and I spend $60 to go to the museum, huh. like, I'm not getting my $60 back from the museum. Yeah. And, like, maybe you can make, like, an analogy to that. It's just, like, the magic tournament is the museum i'm not necessarily expecting to get 60 dollars back or more but if it happens that's pretty cool if i find a hundred dollars on the ground of the museum that's pretty cool okay okay that's interesting it's just kind of like the thing that like i went there to like do or like see or whatever huh okay that's cool i, I did not know that about you yeah I like that pressure. Do you like it in a team... This is a big side tangent. Do you like it in a team tournament when you're the last match, when it's all on your back? Like... Uh, no. Oh, I live I, for it. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I, 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 I like team tournaments where I don't feel like I'm like letting any of my teammates down if I lose, and that's just pretty much whenever it's me, Nick Prince, and Jerry Thompson. That team is just ten out of ten. Oh, uh, but like, but like you would so you you don't mind if it's like your match is the deciding match there, but if it was like you, me, and Harlan, you might feel a little anxious. Maybe not, not like at the time but like if i end up losing that i would feel really bad and i would have to like talk myself through that so it wouldn't affect me the next round because i would feel like i was letting you guys down oh okay that's interesting well i want you to know that if we're ever in a team tournament together which i have all saved on my phone an iou for one i don't know if you remember that you have an iou uh and it's down to me i love it and i'll probably play better i'm all about it like Team All right, Mason, we're officially teaming together then. Okay. Yeah, if it comes down to me and the pressure's on, oh my, I live for it. It's the best. You're just like, you tell me that you lose in the first two minutes, you got like Gristle Brand or whatever, you know? I'm I'm more zoned in than ever. It's just like, let's go. It's all on my back. And then Home Slice wins the one to the right, and it's like, let's go. It's all on me. I'm the main so character. You're middle story. Seat. Oh, I, I am often middle seat. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I, I like to be middle seat because I like to look at everything, but also it's like I I feel like I'm pretty good at pr conveying lots of information uh, about like sideboarding or something or like a question without doing very much. Where like I can kind of like look over, see what's going on, and then be like, yeah or nah, without having to like talk about something a whole bunch. So um, yeah, I very much like team tournaments where everyone's just kind of like doing their own thing, but you can have help in like very specific 
situations or like lines or sideboarding, but that's it. That's what I love. Yeah. Yeah. I hate when people play for me. Don't play for me. Yeah, I've never had anyone try to play for me. The, my my best situation with it has been like with Kane Reinhardt, where it's like I am trying to do something, and he sees that like I'm trying to figure out a complex line, and he'll weigh in if he's been watching for a while, or he will like be like, I have no clue why they did this play. Why would you do this play? Like if I've been watching the whole time, type thing, you know. And so that's always been good. Yeah. But but I've I've definitely had tournaments too where it's like. Actually, on top of Teresa, she hadn't played much standard going into it, and she was just like, I have no clue what's going on here. You know, and it's just like, oh, they're holding up Absorb, you know, just like, <laughs> don't play your best card right this turn, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Stuff like that. So, I, I don't know. Team tournaments are kind of fun, but I love the pressure. Long story short, this is a roundabout way of saying I love when the pressure's on. Playing for top eights, playing, like, if we were playing a team tournament, playing for top eight, oh, dang, I would be feeling it especially if we got paired down playing for top eight i'd be so in the zone it would be <laughs> unreal i actually have a problem where if i'm playing a match and i don't feel the stakes are on i play incredibly worse <laughs> i wonder if like i've changed it all like with all these online tournaments like i don't really get that anxious anymore for any of these even like like i got like i felt it a little bit on my pt top eight winning in but like other than that it was just kind of like oh i'm playing magic so I wonder if that transfers to paper at all. It might. Yeah, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm just thinking back. To, I, I at the uh, SCG Cincy with and I came with uh, tr- uh, sorry Sarah and Julian. Uh, they both won, 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 and one lost their match really quickly. And it was all on me on standard. And Sarah's like, no pressure when you were like going to the sideboard. Like it doesn't matter if we win or lose. And I was like, I will not fail you. Is what I told her. I think I was like down a game or whatever, you know. And it's just like, I got this. I love it. Oh man, I just, that I want that back for team tournaments. I want to win all my rounds two one, and I want to be the deciding game every time. <laughs> Uh, but let's move on to our uh, our Patreon <laughs> question this week. We spent a lot of time kind of, you know, talking about things of what could be. You know, maybe we're all just a little excited to get back to Magic here, hopefully, in the next year or so. But uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. And you get to ask questions to us, and we'll answer them on the podcast. So this week, I got to ask, what's your favorite card uh, so far from Kaldheim? But Allie here actually tries to avoid previews like the plague so what we've done is i've picked two cards and i'm going to read them to Allie, and Allie's going to tell us which one is Allie's favorite and i'm going to tell you which one is my favorite of the two and Allie, if you want to try and guess mine along the way go ahead so it's going to okay. be kind of a, a live thing as well so we're going to start off with a saga Allie requested sagas as one of her favorite type of cards this is called cardu's vicious return it is two black red for a saga uh, the first chapter is you may sacrifice a creature. When you do, Cardu's Vicious Return deals three damage to any target. Chapter two, each player discards a card. Chapter three, return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield. Uh, if you do, put a plus one, plus one counter on it, and it has haste until the uh, next turn. So that oh, is. Oh, yeah. Cardi's I got tagged in this one today. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this one's kind of. One tagged me and was like, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Okay, so you you got some, you have some early thoughts on that one. I'm, I'm going to read you Valky God of Lies, which listeners, I was surprised Ali did not hear about, but I, I checked ahead of time. So 
This one is going to be a fresh one for you, Allie. So this is Valky God of Lies. It's a one to black for a legendary creature god. 2-1. When Valky enters the battlefield, each opponent reveals their hand. For each opponent, exile a creature card. They reveal that way until Valky leaves the battlefield. You may pay X and choose a card exiled with Valky's ability. Well, with converted mana cost X, Valky becomes a copy of that card. But there's more, Allie. Valky has a backside that's Tybalt Cosmic Imposter. It is two black-red for a Planeswalker Tybalt. And Tybalt has a passive of, as, as Tybalt enters the battlefield, you get an emblem which says, you may play cards exiled by Tybalt Cobbert, Cosmic Imposter sorry, uh, and spend mana as though they are mana of any color to cast these spells. It has five loyalty, and you plus two, exile the top card of each player's library. Minus three, exile target artifact or creature. And minus eight, exile all cards from all graveyards and add red, red, red to your mana pool. That's a lot. Yeah. Valky God of Lies, by the way, I know that's a lot to process there. People are calling it the Uro hate card. That's why I told it to you. It's because you exile their Uro, and on your turn three, you turn your Valky into Uro and you attack them. Bam. Oh, that rocks. Bam. What was yeah. your what are we thinking? Ooh, I like Valky. That's cool. Yeah. People are saying Kind of like wh- whatever on the two-volt side, but... Yeah, I think Valky is just kind of close to being good enough. And then in the late game, if you, like, have a bunch of mana and you're both top-decking, you would play Tybalt and you'd be, like, pretty happy about it. But you would never put Tybalt in your deck. So... Yeah, that... No, that's really cool. I like these kind of cards where you're just, like, literally playing this card to play Valky... And then you're like, oh, it's turn, like, nine, and I have seven mana. I guess I'll play Tybalt. Mm. So we're, we're picking Valky slash Tybalt? Is that okay? Yeah, I think so. It's a good one, yeah. Bird. Yeah, that, that's my favorite as well. I like the... I don't even see it yet, but when it comes to Arena, there's, like, a a Nordic art set. Like, the kind of like the fairy tale type things. With, like, Viking runes that they had modern day i can't remember if they said modern day vikings or inspired by old viking art but they have like runes on the side for each of them that are really cool and i like uh valky slash tybalt's alt for that one it's pretty uh it's pretty cool plus oh yeah i I can see them on a mythic spoiler you hover over it and it changes it's really cool oh yeah there we go all right well yeah that's that one and then vorinclex is my favorite card i won't go into too much detail but i think so far, that's the card that has me the most excited to do crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Allie, did you even know the Phyrexians are on this plane until just then? I did. I heard about Boring Clex. Okay. Yeah, I guess the website did break for like an hour or two. That's fair. All righty then. Well, thank you so much uh, for supporting us on Patreon.com so we can do kind of fun segments like that and talk about this sort of thing and answer your questions on the show. No question within reason is off limits. So go on over there. Get some benefits, ask some questions, we'll see you around. If you also want to support the show, you go to our sponsor, Oasis Games. You can pick up your cards there, including the soon-to-be-released Kaldheim card. You can pick up your Valkyrie's God of Lies. There are a lot of gods on this plane, by the way. Slight spoiler, Allie. I've seen like 15 of them so far. There's just, there's many a god. It's throwing me off. And I remember when gods first came to Magic back in my day, they were like enchantments and creatures, and now they're flipping around and... Just not the game I, I fell in love with, you know? But uh, you can pick up all those gods at oasisgames.com. Use code CCMTG at checkout and get 
4% off every order and use code would that be good at checkout your first time to get 15% off. So you can pick up a bunch of cards there for the soon heavily return of Magic, Ellie. It's very exciting. Fauci was um, saying concerts might be back by the fall. Ooh. So that would mean I'm very ready. Yeah. Pretty exciting. All right. Well, Ali, let's talk about our main topic for this week, our training grounds, the act of telling a story and signals. So, Ali, when I talk about signals and storytelling, what exactly do I mean when I'm saying that to our listeners? I, I actually originally thought you meant, like, in paper, kind of like the little, like, clues that someone can give you about their draw, like if they sigh or if they they like grab their graveyard to start looking for something but then for me it would be more looking at like things that you can tell on like arena or moto like what does your opponent's play say about the contents of their hand or their game plan or what their gonna draw or like what they are hoping their out is or something like that just from a simple like play of one card and how we can parse that information exactly yeah it was funny i maybe i was telling someone else about this but when i first like kind of had this idea and i I mentioned it in my article for card kingdom you can go over there and check out an article i kind of talk about this a little bit um i didn't think about it in the way of like IRL, like, oh, your opponent sighs when they draw a card, so it's a land or whatever, you know? Like, I didn't think of it like that. I more, I thought of it more like, oh, my opponent didn't do anything on turn four. Why might they not do something on turn four? And then kind of the, the, the levels of that and kind of talking about those sort of things. So I, I agree with you. I think the thing that we should focus on, too, by the way, is that sort of stuff. Things like your opponent sighing or shuffling their graveyard, those sort of things – they kind of come up in real life, but I think you're better off for the most part ignoring them for the most part, right? Like if your opponent's giving you information, it is most likely not to your benefit when it comes to that sort of thing, right? Like it'd be very easy just to sigh when you draw the perfect card, right? And then you get somebody and then you're the part of a story. And so I think looking at the game and how the game's played out is much more important. So I guess if they've sighed every time they've sighed and played a land, maybe you can infer a little something and get nothing else to go on. But it's much better for us to be looking at things that we can actually discern and reason. Am I right, Allie? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Yep. So we're going to kind of talk about how actions uh, send signals and tell a story. So Allie, I, I, I'm kind of curious... You mentioned to me when we talked about doing this episode that you bring this up on stream a lot, that you kind of try to tell your opponents, well, you try to talk to your chat about, like, why wouldn't my opponent do this or why doesn't this happen? When you're playing, are you trying to think about how the game normally plays out with these kind of cards? What is something that's, like, maybe a little weird that sends, like, a signal to you that something might be off? Um, I, I know a lot with, like, standard and historic. Um, I've pretty much played every deck that there is to play that's at least like pop popularized or popular enough where um i would have played it so when i play against it i kind of at least have a feel for what the draws are what the lines are what uh the sequencing is so i can kind of get information off of that if i'm playing against rogues in standard and they have open mana that just kind of tells me 
that like they potentially have a counter spell and then if they hold up open mana on my turn and don't flash in a rogue at my end step that probably just like confirms that even further and tells me that they don't have more creatures in their hand so they have more of a reactive hand that, obviously that's a very like simple um part of that and it gets more in depth at different points in a game or in a matchup mm -hmm. but yeah just kind of having that experience with every deck kind of opens it up for me to kind of think of what my opponent could have or how they're sequencing or what they could potentially be doing mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like your example with the rogues. It was actually the one I was going to use, despite your hatred of the deck. So I'm glad that you brought it up and not me. Deck think, is so bad. Stop playing rogues. It's great. Uh, so like for like Ali said, for example, right? Like if it's on turn two and you're playing standard, right? And your rogue opponent holds up a blue and a black, right? The things that they could have generally are like an eliminate, a heartless act, a soaring thought thief, an essence scatter. And most likely not a Drown the Lock, unless they played a Crab first, but maybe they have a Drown the Lock, right? Those are kind of the cards that they can have, right? So if you attack like your 1-1 one, one into their thing, right? And your deck doesn't have a play that can normally be, that they would want to punish over getting a free eat, right? And they like let you hit, then it's like, okay, they might not have a Soaring Thought Thief, right? Or if they like flash it in and be like, okay, my deck has something that I could play here, right? For example, like maybe Gruul might have a brushfire elemental that or i guess it'd be like a turn three like a love struck beast that they would want to answer it's like okay they much rather kill my creature than try to answer this with a reactive spell so their hand might be kind of answer light and they want to be a bit more picky and those sort of things get really nuanced and it's kind of hard for us to go too deep on any one topic or one example on a podcast because there's a lot of like variable things but you're telling each other a story right like if i let the one one hit me when my one three could block it that means, okay, either I don't value the damage from the 1-1 one, one, or I value something else happening. And those sort of things are the things that you can infer from a game and you can figure out what the opponent is trying to do and what the, and what they might, might have in their hand. And the kind of the thing that this sort of does is it kind of tells a story, right? It's like, okay, he didn't eat my creature. He didn't play anything at end of turn. All right, maybe... Mason has some essence scatters and eliminates in his hand, right? And now you're kind of forming a pattern, right? Because you're like, okay, he doesn't have thought, Soaring Thought Thief, so I know his hand doesn't look like this. And you're building this narrative for yourself, and your opponent is helping build that narrative, right? When they don't do that, there's a story being told between both of you, if both players are plugged in, right? And so now he, uh, I, it was for, I guess in this case, I would not, I'd be like, okay, they know I don't have Thought Thief here. Da 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 da. And now we start playing the game, right? And this is kind of one of those things that I think gets talked about a lot and a lot of people are very interested in, the idea of like sending signals or the, the kind of more fancy version of this is like mind tricking people, right, Allie? Where it's like, I had a thought thief that I wanted to use on the next turn, but this turn I wanted to counter this and da 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 you know? And they're like, they really like that kind of tricky stuff, but whatever, that doesn't really matter. What matters is like getting to the point where you can understand this and then you can kind of work on those other things, right? But do you, uh, do you agree with what I've said so far about like the idea of how the narrative works between both players and you're both part and telling each other a story? Yeah, I also think um, a little bit of a side tangent. I think the example that you brought up um, with like the Soaring Thought Thief there is really good too and gives you further information not only of what 
you could potentially have if you're taking the one damage and not flashing in the Soaring Thought Thief right away to block. It t also tells me what kind of player you are. Like like you said, you don't... Yeah, like, that one life loss is not important to you. It's not detrimental to you. So I read from that that you're a much more patient player or that you're more knowledgeable about your deck and you value holding up a counter spell and you can flash in your creature at the end step so like that that's giving me information about you and how you play too which i think is important yeah and the same for if they flash it in right and it's like well you needed to count this love struck beast right like this thing's gonna beat you right wherever like if that's the truth of the matchup you're like okay maybe they're less well versed in this matchup if they, if they do have a counter spell in hand maybe they're more impatient kind of like you said right and those sort of things matter a lot when you're playing. Just like Ali's saying, right? Like you, every time you play someone, they're a person with thoughts and feelings and ideas, right? And they're not some robot. They're not some nameless opponent or whatever. They're a person. And playing the game the way they are playing and understanding how they are playing is an important part. And understanding what they could be having and why they're playing the way they are can lead to some pretty important things, right? Like, if you're a deck that needs to sequence your spells against, like, maybe a counterspell deck, right? Understanding why... Or understanding how your opponent thinks, I should say, then lets you know why you should sequence your spells in a certain order, right? Like, if, let's say over the course of a match, I'm playing against Allie, and Allie is the control deck. And every time I play my uh, Lovestruck Beast, Allie snap counters it. Doesn't care if it's the one one side, the, the front side alley is like negate essence scatter. Not today, you know, and just keeps going at it. I might think that Alley really values that card in the matchup. And I might not actually value that card in the matchup that highly, right? So when I draw my card like Clothis, I might be like, okay, let me try casting the Love Struck Beast on the one one side. Allie's shown that uh she'll negate it if she can. And if Allie negates there, it's like, boom, I'll stick my Clothis. I think this card actually matters. And you can do sort of things like that where you can understand how the game goes. And then from that sort of point, you're kind of understanding the the narrative of the game. I, I, I always think of it as a narrative. I understand that some people see it differently. Is that how you think of it, Allie? That might be an important thing because there are other ways to kind of visualize this. Some people call it the story. Some people call it the flow of the game. I call it the narrative, because I see it like each game is its own story, but that's me. Yeah, I guess I've never thought of it that way before, but I think that's a really interesting way of going through it. I don't know how I've really thought about the game and that aspect, but I, I, I do agree with you. It does kind of flow and tell a story. I think it's important when we're talking about this to kind of talk about um, why it's so important. And, and we've I've, I've kind of mentioned a few little things, but I think I really want to – I think we really should nail this home because it's such an important part of the game. And it's something that I think a lot of people don't quite it's, – it's not only is it hard to learn and it's hard to teach to someone, it's something that is hard to have conversations about, right? Because a lot of the times when you're having conversations about this, the other people think, oh, you're not thinking objectively about the game or you're not thinking this or they're not there so they don't understand or they don't get the kind of the nuance of things of what's being said. But I think this, the act of sending signals and playing the game and being active in your story that you're telling each other is hyper important because it gives you context for the game, right? Like 
in the same way that if you're at a team tournament, like we talked about earlier, right, where Ali said, like, I, w- I don't want my teammates to play for me, but if they have, like, Cyborg and something like that, I really want it. You don't want your teammate to jump in mid-game if they haven't been watching and say, like, oh, I, I think you should do this, objectively this. But it's like, okay, no, over the course of this match and the last couple turns, they, they've been holding their mana up. They will let me hit them with this little creature. I don't think I should cast this spell. I'm pretty sure they have Absorb, right? And, like, that sort of thing is something that you get for playing your games and being an active participant in your game, right? Being an active, actively engaged. And I think so often people don't get engaged and they're not thinking about what's actually happening in the game and what has happened. They're not giving it their uh, critical thinking cap. And maybe you've been doing this as someone who's listening. You never really had someone talk to you about this. I think if that's the case good on you but if you're hearing this in the idea of like thinking about what my actions tell my opponent and what their actions tell me and that's a new idea to you this is something that i think you should really try to work on and really try to start thinking about would you agree with that ali yeah i agree um i think at like the level one kind of like how we were talking about what leaving up mana or playing in a certain way tells what can potentially be in your opponent's hand if you're really like in tune with the matchup or the deck or the format or whatever um and i think that's just like level one of importance of kind of parsing out the actual game and gameplay and what happens there and then the level two is also understanding how what that says about your opponent too and how they play and how how you should sideboard because if they're a gruel player but they're playing much more conservatively than the average aggressive gruel player you definitely want to sideboard differently against them than you would the aggressive player and it's important to like identify that or else you're going to sideboard as if you're playing against an aggressive player and that probably just looks different and plays out differently because you weren't in tune with how your opponent's been playing the match a hundred percent that's a really big thing too for like in person or not open deckless tournaments right like recently with arena and stuff it's been open deckless but if your opponent's playing more passively it might stand a reason that their deck isn't as aggressive right and then maybe their sideboard plan is more passive as well right if it's like oh my opponent's taking a really conservative approach towards everything they might have more clothes god of destiny right or whatever then maybe they would have things like uh what's the phoenix called the phoenix of ash or whatever uh so like that sort of thing those both are grindy cards right but the approach to the game those cards present is very different and so being an active participant being engaged with the story that they're telling you how they're playing the story how they're moving their pieces right lets you know a lot about what could potentially be there in the future for uh non-open deckless tournaments Let's say I'm so not looking forward to non-open deckless tournaments again. It's so weird. This side tangent, I felt like I was because that information of knowing what was imp- going on in sideboards was so important, I valued it a lot and so I was actively just consuming sideboards all the time and like I would do things like writing my sideboard guide where it's like in out them and then them was like things that are typically played in this deck sideboard that might come in against me depending on the range of my opponent or how they feel about the matchup 
right? And so it would just be like cards I'd be thinking about. And I feel like I knew so much. And then I play ladder now, and I feel like I don't have that skill. And I realize it's because I play open deckless tournaments, so I don't need to learn what's in people's sideboards typically. I just get to see it. <laughs> it's such a weird phenomenon where I feel like I like lost this muscle, but I don't need the muscle right now. So it's like kind of fine. I don't know. It's it's really weird. <laughs> it's just so like weird, right? Too of like, w like once you get like, I can't phrase that well. Be become like a known personality and like an SCG tournament or whatever. So you're on features all day or you're on camera all day, and all of your opponents just know what you're playing, and you just have to sit down and have no clue what you're up against. Like I remember. At an invitational, someone kept a uh, turn one Pythian Needle against Emma Handy because they thought she was uninfect, and she was, so she lost because of it. And that just so sucks about the, like, non-open deckless things is, like, people just, like, have no chance at some points just because people know who you are. Yeah. It's another weird thing, too, where it's, like, when, like, you're on Lotus Box, I'm on Nova... And it's like our deck lists are open, right? Like, like you can get our deck list if you want, and your friend might have you might you might not even be paying for the content, right? Like your friend might be, and they're like, "Oh, Ali's on Jund again," you know, and it's like, "Okay, sweet," you know, and like they just even have an idea of what you're playing going into it. It's a it's a totally different experience. Um, all right, tangent over. Back to the main thing. It is wild though. Uh, <laughs> When you're so you're hearing this alley, right, and you're like, I, I haven't done this, how am I supposed to do this? What might be some things that pop into your head as a way to start practicing this? Um I think when I like I didn't even like notice that I do this until I started streaming. Like at least like in in my actual like conscious thought. Mm -hmm. Um it was always just a subconscious thing, but just because, like, when I'm streaming, I'm talking out loud, so I'm, like, thinking out loud. And whenever, like, an opponent plays something or does something, I just, like, automatically think of, okay, like, what does this tell me about their hand? If they're playing Gruel and it's turn two, and they just, like, play a land and pass, to me, I'm thinking, okay, what can they do at instant speed on turn two? Because there's no way... Gruel is going to take an opportunity to not play a spell like every turn they can. Mm -hmm. So I just rationally think, okay, they have stomp. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's a great one, and I, 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 <laughs> I hesitate to do this, but I think this is like a great example of so like Ali just kind of gave you the mindset of like the average Gruel player, right? Like Ali said, the average Gruel player was going to take their chance to stomp, right, and they're going to do their thing. If you have a creature you could play that that will die to the stomp, and you can just hold it. And they will most likely spin the stomp on you because they want to use their mana and then play the giant, right? So you can take two damage and wait a turn and get to save a card. And things like that are the things that you can glean insights to. And this is why this is so important is you can do stuff like that. I don't want to go too deep on that, but I thought it was a great moment to fit something like that in. Where if you know these are the common play patterns and your opponent's showing you do stuff like that, you can just hold your two drop and go, and then on the next turn, or work it into a later turn. And then now you're up cards in exchange for a little bit of life. Um, I think that's really good. Are there other things that you kind of think about or thought, or maybe you would tell somebody? I, I have a couple myself, but I was curious to hear what you thought. 
Um, a, a lot of my stuff is just like in historic, and it comes with just a million reps of of the same deck. Uh, so like playing a Rakdos Sacrifice Mirror, I might like look at how my opponent is sequencing their or or even just like prioritizing their like three drops because three drops are super important in this deck so that one tells me how experienced they are with the deck if they run out a three drop that's not like woe strider and don't have any sacrifice sources they i might i might think that they're less experienced with the deck than i am if uh as opposed to if they start out with a Woe Strider or start out putting a Sacrifice Source into play to, like, pseudo-protect their more important three drops. Mm -hmm. That's a little, like, niche for people who don't play Rakdos Sacrifice, but just, I guess, having the reps and kind of... it, It mostly just, like, tells me about my opponent and how my opponent is playing and how they're gonna play in future games. And where I can sneak in spots to get an advantage over them in the game, like knowing that my my claim the firstborns have so much more value against them because they're not going to put out a sacrifice source first before throwing their man devil to a claim the firstborn. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's good stuff. Um, for me, because you kind of mentioned how you start with this, it was an internal thing. When I started playing Magic a bunch, I was playing Moto Leagues every night from like 10 to 2 a.m., basically every night. And I was playing it with my friend Trey. And one of us would be piloting and the other would be watching. And we would talk about the plays all the time. And one of the things that would cost me talking about is why would they do this? What's in their hand? And Trey had played for a long time before me. And so looking back on it, I see it as Trey like trying to help me understand this concept I was learning. But it kind of became ingrained to me that when I'm playing, I'm always thinking about what are they doing? Why would they do that? What's in their hand? And so that became what happened to me. So if you have people, friends you play with, I was just doing that. That's what we did. Um, if you don't have that, what I think is important, an important way or a good way to do this is to have like a notepad or have Microsoft Word pull up on your computer and just type what you think their hand is. Like they didn't do, they didn't play a two drop and they didn't play. Uh, a fire prophecy where a stomp on my creature in gruel on turn two with two man up. And then you can just be like, okay, I think their hand has three drops and maybe ember cleaves and like the great hands, right? And like no brush fire, no bone crusher. Right. And so like on the next turn, if they play a brush fire elemental, it's like, okay, I knew they drew brush fire elemental cause they didn't play it last turn. Right. And just, just things like that. Right. Like if your opponent's playing an elves deck and turn one, they don't play land or elves and turn two, they play a Lanor Elves and a land and say go. What might they have drawn for turn, Allie? Do you think it's Lanor Elves? <laughs> just things like yes. that. Yes. <laughs> right. Congratulations. <laughs> and just things like that are super minor, but they, they add up a lot, right? And they can really help you. They can really help you in the game as well, where if you're actively thinking about that sort of thing and you make that your goal when you're playing, then you're going to get a lot better really quickly at that thing. You might lose games or your games might take longer because you're doing this sort of thing and you're going to have the wrong read some some percentage of the time, maybe even a lot more at the start. But you'll start to understand if you can review it that with a critically and fair eye and not judge yourself too harshly for getting it wrong since everyone gets it wrong sometimes. Just understand that about yourself and do that. And I think this will give you serious, serious dividends in your game. And it'll be super helpful. And then when IRL magic comes back in real life, 
you're just going to be juiced. Rockley leg weights <laughs> off. It's going to be insane. I think another important example that I just kind of thought of was um, I was just trying to think of like what is in your opponent's hand. And I think sometimes we get a little lazy with that when opponent is just like has six lands in play, like draws a card and like passes and we just like, oh, like maybe it's a land or whatever. Mm -hmm. um and like sometimes it is but i try and like challenge myself to think about like okay like what could they reasonably be holding up and i think a lot of the time that's like interaction counter spells or even if we're looking at like uh gruel um aggro and standard there was this one time i was playing against um gruel and i think i was playing esper doom so i kind of just like throughout my kill spells like anytime i could and then my opponent was like holding like four or five cards and i like i didn't know why i'm like okay that's weird so whenever they played a creature i would just kill it and move on with my life but what they were doing is they were holding brush fire elementals and like fabled passage um evolving wilds until they could play them both in a turn both of the brushfire elementals and kill me with all of the fabled passages they had accumulated. Yeah, and they just killed me in one shot. <laughs> that's sick. Yeah, that that's that that is the kind of stuff we're talking about, right? Too where like, Ali's opponent identified like, oh, Mebo's gonna kill these creatures I'm playing. If I can hold these, I can maybe run Mebo out, and maybe Mebo will tap out on a turn for something, and that'll be the turn I can strike. You know, and that sort of stuff is really cool it's really helpful and it's super important it, it, it i i honestly think ali i don't know how you feel about this but i feel like it's one of those barriers that people have to kind of break through you know like a ceiling like the idea of understanding why your opponent's doing stuff and understanding why they would do that i i think it's like a huge ceiling and a huge barrier for a lot of players yeah i think if you have access to someone to like test with or watch their matches i think that helps a lot too because sometimes you can see things um outside of a match that you're not like emotionally invested in mm -hmm. um and just kind of get those pieces because you're not like in the moment playing right like when we were watching i think we were watching kyle the other night mm -hmm. maybe or maybe it was abe i don't know i just remember like they were doing it's something about the situation that we're talking about here is like their opponent had like stuff in hand but wasn't really like doing anything so i quickly identified like oh they they literally only have interaction mm -hmm. and whoever we were watching was just like oh yeah like that that makes sense oh it was connor we said their hand was interaction and ultimatums because they had like six yeah, mana. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because their because their mana wasn't correct for ultimatum, mm -hmm. and they didn't do anything for like five turns straight. So I'm just like, it has to be literally only counter spells and team or ultimatum. Yeah, and it was that. <laughs> and so yes. like, that that sort of thing is is super beneficial, and it's one of the things too where the, the information's there, right? Like it's all in front of you. You just can take a little bit of time and parse it, and getting good at that and working on that skill is super important. So uh, I'm glad we talked about this today. I think it's super helpful and hopefully this was helpful for you, the listener. 
Allie, if someone wants to find you to reach out about the show or anything like that, or maybe read your new articles on Card Kingdom, where would they go or where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Mythic Mebo. You can find my articles at Card Kingdom. Uh, my second one will be out um, on Friday. Very Fuckers. exciting. And you can watch me stream every weekday on twitch.tv slash mythic underscore Mebo. Word. You can find me writing each and every week also on Card Kingdom every Thursday uh, at card cardkingdom.com slash Mason Clark. And you can find me on twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. And you can find the podcast here each and every week. And follow the podcast on Twitter at CCMTG. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of the show. We'll be back for next week for another episode of Constructed Criticism. <laughs>